Then everything flooded back. The dry, legal voices rang louder in my head. I heard again the car horns out on the street, the trucks rattling over the Barrack Street Bridge, the screech of a train's brakes in the station below. How could I do that? I felt my heart pounding. Had I fainted? Had anyone noticed? It didn't seem so. Up there, in front of me again, was the focus of all the rooms and the city's attention and emotion. Of course... He hadn't gone away. He wasn't going anywhere. Everyone believed he was as good as convicted of multiple murder. I was trying to stay objective, but I thought so too. Then again, I told myself, put anyone in the dock and they look guilty of something, especially those middle-class first-timers who sprang blithely up the steps, the spruce church wardens, scoutmasters and stockbrokers. The instant they gripped the dock rail and faced the music... Their faces went red or ashen. This instantaneous blushing or blanching, like the ominous sunlight, was one of the many interesting courtroom observations I'd made in my short time as an apprentice reporter on the West Australian. From my press table vantage point, as assistant to the police courts reporter, Jim Dollymore, a shorthand wizard of 23, I'd noticed how the most minor petty sessions court, the most trivial charge, had the same humbling effect. Even a negligent driving charge in a Fremantle traffic court would do it. It didn't take the presiding presence of a magistrate or judge. Well before the start of proceedings, the courtroom's stern demeanour and furnishings and coat of arms, that powerful combination of law, history, punishment and varnished timber, had awed and mystified them. As much as by their current adverse circumstances, they looked crushed by important-looking wood. This certainly applied to the small, frowning figure in the dock. Only because I knew him, and he was sitting up there in front of me, living and breathing and looking anxious if oozing criminality, was I able to give him, if only for a second or two, the benefit of the faintest doubt. The odd thing was that after nearly two days of undramatic and convoluted detective-speak, Whilst in attendance, I ascertained that a male person had been shot in the head whilst lying in bed by a person in that immediate vicinity, and the prosecutor's low-key delivery, it was strangely, cruelly easy to forget that the charge he faced involved someone else I'd known, a boy who was now dead. But then, like some legal afterthought, the victim's name would suddenly come up again in proceedings. Oh, yes, him... And with a sickening shock, I'd remember that the subject of the police photographs on the court clerk's table, Exhibit 14, the shattered head, the blackened mess of blood and matter, was a friend of mine. Throughout the first day of the committal hearing in the Perth Police Court, the top photograph of Exhibit 14 was visible from my seat. It wasn't one of the more grisly ones. This wasn't one of the full body or head shots. It was a ten by eight inch glossy print of my friend's narrow wooden bed on the back veranda of the student boarding house where he was shot that summer night, the evening of Australia Day, while he was fast asleep. I couldn't stop glancing toward the photo even though members of his family were in the court and I felt bad about them catching me looking. The sheets... Mattress and pillow in the photograph were black with his blood, and more blood was pooled on the cement floor. The veranda was narrow, more an open porch leading from the kitchen door to the laundry and lavatory, and the bedhead 
was only about three feet from the lavatory door. There was barely room for the bed and a small table and a couple of unmatched cane chairs at the foot of the bed. It was rudimentary student accommodation, and hot weather student accommodation at that. In front of the bed, a clothesline had been strung between two veranda posts, and a sheet was pegged to the line as a makeshift curtain, perhaps intended to give a little privacy to the outdoor sleeper, but more likely in this case, I thought, to keep the sun's rays from waking him too early after a late night. To get uninterrupted access to the boy on the bed, some person had hurriedly twisted the sheet up on the line rather than remove it altogether. It hung there like a chrysalis. I wondered if this person had been a detective or an ambulanceman or the murderer. For efficiency's sake, the authorities had decided to try the prisoner on this particular murder charge alone. In the unlikely event that it failed, they had plenty of other charges to fall back on. During the first day and a half of the hearing, I almost forgot about the other murders. I was also forgetting the detailed confession. I remembered it, however, late in the afternoon on the second day. The prosecutor was outlining how cooperative the defendant had been, how thoroughly he had reenacted his crimes for the detectives, how willingly he had revisited all the murder scenes, and even recalled the exact light stanchion, number 324, nearest to where he'd thrown one of the rifles from the bridge, enabling the police divers, after three hours' effort in sixteen feet of water, to recover it from the silt of the riverbed. As this helpful act was revealed, the barnacle-encrusted rifle was lying there on the exhibit table, next to a blood-stained dressing gown. A strange expression spread across the defendant's face. In my experience of courts, brief as it was, your average alleged murderer would have shaken his head at this point, or frowned, or simply looked blank. But this one looked grateful. His frown vanished and his mouth twisted into a modest but comradely grin. He nodded his head in agreement. As odd as it seemed, he cheered up. More than anything, his manner reminded me of one of those unspectacular but useful utility players interviewed by a sportscaster after winning a football game. One of the team at last, and quietly pleased and proud to have his efforts finally recognised. For security, I supposed, as much as for architectural reasons... The windows of the Victorian building housing Perth's petty session and committal courts, as well as the state's police headquarters, detective bureau and central police station, had been built high in thick stone walls, about 12 feet off the floor. Opening onto a grim asphalt yard, where the prisoners brought from Fremantle Prison were unloaded from the Black Mariahs and taken to the court's holding cells, the windows faced west, over the lock-up, and a fennel-smelling toilet block, and a long row street, infamous since the 1890s gold rushes as the street of police-sanctioned brothels, and only recently closed down. Although the panes were smeared by years of grit and soot from the adjoining traffic bridge and railway station, by mid-afternoon on the second day of the hearing, the defendant was sitting in the dock wreathed in sunshine. The dock faced west, too. Now and then, he'd patiently inch his chair out of the glare and his guards would look more alert for a moment and make self-conscious adjustments to their own chairs and postures and already grim facial expressions. He had to squint into a stream of rays to see me sitting below the windows, bent over my notebook. Suddenly, 
I felt him staring at me. I'd been avoiding his eyes, hoping he wouldn't recognize me. But a moment later he winked. I winked back. Then I felt a hot wave of embarrassment that quickly turned into anger at myself. I hoped that no one, not the magistrate or the other reporters, and especially not the victim's family, had seen me. I told myself I should have ignored his wink and looked away, but in the split second when I'd weighed up my response, I decided he was in such deep shit that it would be uncharitable and somehow treacherous not to wink back. And there was another thing, something pretty horrible. Part of me had also responded gratefully to recognition from a celebrity, even from the worst type of celebrity. For a second I felt recognised, in the centre of things. To be a participant instead of an observer went totally against my training as a reporter, but I liked the feeling. It also made me feel hot and rattled that this was so. This was a pretty far step removed from the impulse to join all the other posterity-craving names scratched into the varnish of the press table. On my second day in court, I'd succumbed to this one. It sickened me that anyone should think my wink indicated I was on his side. I hated how my feelings were so easily swung around. But at least now we'd made eye contact, I could study him more openly and I couldn't get over his appearance of patient contentment or his late-in-the-day change of manner. He wasn't wearing a tie, and his suit and shirt were creased and grubby. In the circumstances, looking so shabby could hardly help him. I guessed he must have been roused for court very early that morning, because by late afternoon his black five-o'clock shadow gave him that look of a minor gangster or a stubbled saloon extra in a western. Now he reminded me of some movie character in particular. Who was it?